with these approaches, we can actually ask questions about what security and insecurity mean, or the plurals of both securities and insecurities, and how we understand peace and conflict vis-a-vis structural global inequalities. And obviously, most importantly, what experiencing those security practices, war or the tactility of border regimes, for example, can mean and how people who encounter these situations make sense of them. What we can also do with these approaches is we can uncover sexist and racist practices along these lines, but we can also be attentive to other forms of discrimination. In this episode, we discuss with fellow PhD researcher Madita Stanke Erdman about postcolonial and feminist approaches to international relations. We then try to relate to cases like EU border insecurity through this more critical lens. These approaches help us understand different events in international politics within a structured world of inequality. Welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos. This episode focuses on more critical understandings within international affairs. And our topic here evaluates the application of postcolonial and feminist theories with particular reference to movement, EU borders, and security. We also examine international politics in general through this more critical lens. For this episode, I am hosting Madita Stantke Erdmann, a doctoral researcher at the University of Vienna. Hi, Madita, and welcome to our show. Hi, thanks a lot for having me. Great. So um, personally, I'm very confident this is going to be a, a very interesting and exciting discussion. Uh, but before we go there, I just want to share a few words for our guest. Uh, Madita Stanke Erdman is a doctoral researcher with the project GBVMIG, Gender-Based Violence Against Women, Migrants and Re- Refugees, which is funded through Horizon 2020 and GenderNet Plus, and also a PhD candidate at the University of Vienna. She obtained her MSc in International Relations Theory from the London School of Economics and Political Science in 2018. And in her PhD research, she focuses on feminist and postcolonial approaches to international security with a particular interest in border security practices. She looks at how, through vulnerability assessments of refugees, gendered and racialized logics of international security find expression in the European borderland. So this is actually great stuff. Let's begin with um, general observation and some introductory remarks on these theories that we're puzzling with today. Uh, because, you know, postcolonial and feminist theories are, in a sense, part of a more critical IR family group of theories. And these are actually massive chapters on their own. So we will not be digging in too in depth because... Uh, you know, we, we, we can't really just go through these theories in just one episode, but I feel that this would be a very useful exercise for our audience in general to try and break these down a bit so that we understand better what their use is and what they are capable of addressing. So, Marita, would you like to share some key and financial foundational elements that we observe in these approaches? Yeah, sure. I mean, you alluded to that already. It's a huge topic. Both of them are huge um, topics, and I'll try to, you know, just be as brief as I can, Um, although there will probably be much more to add to um, both uh, concepts. So there's a versatility of feminist theories and feminisms and approaches to postcolonialism and postcoloniality in a world fundamentally shaped by dynamic Um, and ever-changing processes and practices, and obviously also power relations of the 
if you will, remnants of colonialism and imperialism, but also neo-colonial and neo-imperial, um, but also patriarchal structures. And there's a strong interconnection between activist and academic endeavors with uh, feminist and post-colonial theories um, or approaches to IR and security, but also in general in the academy. And although some of these approaches might, might actually be a little bit more intellectualized than others, there's definitely a sort of reciprocal relationship between the activist and the academic endeavors. And we see that um, in the influence of feminist and anti and de and post-colonial art and activist movements and literature which have shaped and continue to shape um, academic scholarship and also start to return to the academy through these approaches. Um, and I, what I believe um, the merits of post-colonial and feminist prisms, theoretical prisms really are, is that they have the ability, or both of them have the ability to identify and deconstruct the gendered and racialized foundations of international security and also international politics, but um, at the same time also challenge those foundations in the discipline of IR themselves. So in IR and security studies, both strands, if you will, they challenge the epistemologies of major or mainstream concepts and conceptions about the state, order and hegemony, you know, by, for example, looking at the histories and the historiography of global hierarchies and patriarchal inequalities, how they grew, for example, through imperialism and also expressions of power that we are often taught to take for granted in international politics and the discipline. And what I find especially thrilling is that with these approaches, we can actually ask questions about what security and insecurity mean, or, you know, also the, the plurals of both securities and insecurities, and how we understand peace and conflict vis-a-vis -vis structural global inequalities. And obviously, most importantly, what experiencing those security practices, war or the tactility of border regimes, for example, can mean and how people who encounter these situations make sense of them. What we can also do with these approaches is we can uncover sexist and racist practices along these lines, but we can also be attentive to other forms of discrimination, which find this expression in a global scale, which is often referred to as an intersectional approach. And at the same time, we can explore how masculinities and femininities shape understandings of um, quote-unquote proper security politics or proper security practices. I think this is especially interesting when we look at debates on nuclear deterrence um, or security regimes. Um, and then obviously you can also, you know, coming back to the epistemologies a little bit, we can challenge Western conceptions about vulnerability, agency, victimhood, and also, you know, global solidarity. But we can also explore the absences and silences mm -hmm. while, and I think this is really, really important, methodologically reflecting on our own positionalities during conducting research. So who are we? What is our position? What do we look at? And how do we do that, right? But, and then of course, um, there's also a lot of debate within those theories and paradigms, if you will, um, because post-colonial approaches also challenge many feminist ideas, um, especially Western feminist ideas about patriarchy and oppression in their theory and in practice. And I think this is a really vibrant and fascinating theoretical and practical realm, which is constantly negotiated and which is constantly debated, um, and which, in my humble opinion, is still heavily marginalized in IR and international politics. 
It is, it is. I would have to agree that, you know, more critical interpretations of how war politics work, they are often marginalized because, uh, you know, as uh, critical theorists and researchers, we sometimes have to, we essentially go outside of comfort zone and people don't really do that because when they're using uh, mainstream theories, they like, they prefer, you know, the existing structures to work with existing frameworks. And I think what's really important about what postcolonial and feminist theories, what they bring to the table of discussion is to actually further the discussion on uh, causation to understand uh, the different uh, causes and the different views as to how things come into being. The more critical evaluation of how this hegemonic patriarchal rhetoric that we face uh, at every corner from domestic to international politics, it's just fascinating to explore. And this is uh, something that uh, even in other critical theories, sometimes you, you don't really visit. And uh, like, uh, for example, in Marxism, sometimes you just don't really talk about, for example, gender or post-colonial practices. It really depends, obviously, on the school of thought there. But I just want to move on now because we've, uh, like I said before, we can't just really go too much in depth. But I want to see how we can just cross-examine a bit and start applying uh, some functions of these theories and at issues of international security. Uh, you yourself are working on uh, a project of such, re uh, which is related to this. And when we look at the EU, so particularly in recent years, there is a whole obsession or troubleshooting with border security. So let's start off first with the current approaches and narratives to EU border security. And then if you'd like just to fit in uh, some of your key points that you'd like to, that you're focusing within your own research. Yeah, sure. Um... So you use the word obsession. I think that's interesting um, in this border security context, because I think that um, from a critical point of view, obviously the question is where the, the obsession is directed towards, right? Is it about the political obsession uh -huh. that is um, directed towards the, the European border regime? Um, or is it more the question of that there is more and more scholarship which actually engages with borders and what they actually mean and what they reproduce and how they constitute the international, right? So I think what I'd, what I'd like to do to keep it a little more practical is to talk about the first point and especially when we look at EU border regime, the EU border regime, which we have to, you know, understand that it has been expanding into the African continent, for example, and also to other um, neighborhoods um, of the European Union. So it doesn't really stop at the, let's say, the physical borders, right? Is that the way that politics have moved towards stressing the necessity to pour in lots and lots of money um, for border security infrastructure and to also involve increasing an increasing number, number of private military and private security agencies is, I think, really interesting in understanding where international security is kind of moving towards because if we if we move away from this very you know let's say i don't know maybe very state centric understanding of borders um you know moving that towards a more diverse understanding not diverse understanding but maybe a little bit more of a 
um, challenged understanding that there's not only the state who is involved or a big international entity like the European Union, but that also private security actors are actually involved in shaping those borders at the moment. I think this is really interesting to look at. And then obviously, you know, when we, when we consider that the language about border security and what I would say is kind of the, you know, pushing the neoliberal project of efficiently managing borders and migration. I think this is, a, this is really interesting when we shadow or mirror that with what is, um, what is at stake, really. Because if we, I think it's kind of ironic that the European Union has been increasing its border regime or the practices around there towards people who are coming from there, and this is now maybe a little bit of a most post-colonial perspective, who are coming from former colonies, right? It's, and it's not only the African continent, but we're also talking about um, the Middle East or um, even further Eastern countries. So I think there's a, the, the complexity of what is happening at the border is so interesting to look at since, you know, we could look at um, the EU external borders as a temporal, let's say historical, but also a practical site to understand how post-coloniality is actually entrenched in border politics and border security. But then we can also ask, you know, through how are gender conception actually entrenched in, in the ideas of security that are, that are practiced over there? So how can we expand our knowledge about border practices. And I think this is, this is kind of what I'm trying to look at. And that's why I, I picked a very specific element in my research, thinking about what does it actually mean to categorize or assess people's vulnerability, right? Who come to the, to the to borders, who approach them after, you know, strenuous and probably really, really dangerous journeys to claim asylum or, you know, to seek protection. And the fact that you get to the border and people are actually there to assess the, the person's vulnerability is for me an expression or really interesting to look at as an expression of how gendered and maybe also racialized dynamics are negotiated along these lines of international security. Because yeah, through that, we can actually understand how the European border and migration regime acts and conceptualizes people who are coming to the borders. So, and I think we can, I can illustrate that with one particular example of this new migration, this new action plan on migration and asylum, where a new section, which has kind of been added to the pact, if you will, is a preliminary identification of people before they can actually claim asylum or refuge or actually ask for international protection. And what that entails is health and security checks, which is interesting that this is kind of embroidered into one. And then they also try to go for identity checks. And um, then in, in the end, that kind of boils down to how vulnerable are those people that are coming through, uh, through the borders or who, who approach the borders. And, how, and then I asked I ask myself the question, how is that negotiated? Isn't that kind of maybe also a matter of deficiency management, right? Mm -hmm. Because we know that across, across European borders and in the borderland, there has been a significant lack of humanitarian aid. There's been a significant um, lack of infrastructure for people to actually approach and seek help. 
So I, I wonder like in a, in the bigger picture where this is going to be going. And that's, that's why I kind of identified those vulnerability assessments as something which can indicate a lot about the coloniality of the borders, if you will, but also can tell us a lot about the gendered patterns underlying those security practices. Are you looking at specific cases or any other examples within EU border security? Are you looking at specific peoples? Are you looking at specific countries around the region? Yeah, what I, what I am looking at at the moment, and obviously due to COVID and the pandemic, it's not really clear how that's going to unfold but I'll be looking at the Balkan region, so the Western Balkans, because I think this is an, a really interesting region where um, countries are kind of in the, you know, having this accession candidate status and who are negotiating with the European Union are kind of obligated to show that they're um, able to manage their borders. How, how this is a, yeah, this is, this is an interesting, interesting region for me to look at. And the region of the canton in uh, Unasana in Bosnia and Herzegovina has been of interest to me because, first of all, it's been featured in the media more than any other region, I believe, um, over the last couple of years. And what I also find particularly interesting is that um, a lot of the, the coverage, the media coverage, only has been, you know, presenting us with visuals of refugee men instead and not really looking at what other groups or what other, yeah, what other groups are actually approaching that region. And you mentioned before that our project, the research project that I'm working for, looks at refugee women and migrant women. And for now, I'm looking at women, actually, in, the, in my dissertation. but you know, I've come across the fact that it might actually be more reasonable to not really differentiate between different groups of people who come to the border and who would, you know, want to cross the border, but that it actually makes sense to look at vulnerability itself. Do you feel that uh, you've sort of already touched upon this, but how do you think the tougher measures or any sort of restrictions or any other recommendations uh, you, you, I mean, you've already mentioned uh, the relevant policies. How do you think these are, okay, we, in terms of general migration, I, we, we can understand how this shapes migration in general, but in terms of human trafficking and asylum seeking and refugees fleeing for, there are gaps there. How does this policy shape this either for, you know, for, for the better or for worse? Um, do you feel that the, the fact that the EU sometimes re- ignores these vulnerabilities has an impact on how well it actually deals with border security in general? I think that's an interesting question. Um, I, I'm not sure if, if the, you know, framing it as the European U- Union ignores those vulnerabilities. I think there's a, and that's what makes it so interesting, there's a there's a specific emphasis on refugees and migrants' vulnerability, but in a very undifferentiated way. So, you know, those things that you were just naming, you know, the, 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 the aspect of human trafficking, of um, people seeking international protection due to war, I think they are, they are you know, legally, they can, they're actually found in 
in frameworks and legal frameworks that the EU has been working with. And if you look at um, humanitarian organizations, there are like the UNHCR or the IOM, they, they actually put focus on people who have been trafficked or on, you know, people who, who look for international protection. But the, the interesting part to me is that it is very, very unclear what is actually understood as a person being vulnerable. So there, there are very clear terms at some point. And then at the other point, you know, you know, if you focus on, on those, on those very clear points, like for example, human trafficking, there tends to exist much more, much more research and insight and also policy measures, which has been developed to it. But then other forms of vulnerabilities due to the fact that there's such a, such a kind of a volatile framework on what vulnerability actually means um, are not are not being seen and i'm not claiming that i already know what these vulnerabilities are but um there there's research that shows that due to kind of prescriptive categories of vulnerability that are you know prescribed to people who approach the borders it makes it really really hard for people to you know, counter their or to, you know, address their insecurities at the border. And, it, and at the same time, people also tend to adapt to um, those, those um, criteria that are put up um, by international organizations or by local NGOs. So it's kind of this, this very unclear framework that we're looking at. And um, in terms of you were, what you were asking due to harsher measures, I think that if we use the example of Lesbos in September, there was a lot of talk about, you know, for example, by the German government who, which said that we're gonna, we're gonna take in the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. And that the same thing happened in March already when the Turkish government kind of threatened the EU and then also allowed people to cross their borders uh, onto the Greek islands and onto the Greek territory, if you will. That was kind of the same dynamic that then the German government and other governments too uh, agreed to say, we'll take in the most vulnerable of the vulnerable, but it kind of neglects the vulnerabilities of other people. It kind of neglects or doesn't look at what, um, what people are actually confronted with, what kind of insecurities they're facing. And it doesn't really take in their perspective. It doesn't really take in their, their experience. And this is, this is kind of the interesting aspects that I'm trying to look at, like how does that unfold? Okay, so this is very specific to these case, but when we take a step back and try and see how this compares elsewhere, let's say in the American continent or East Asia, you, do we see the same limitations and gaps? Do we see the same sort of puzzles of, uh, you know, uh, this sort of ignorance, I mean, or neglecting? Do we see this being replicated elsewhere? Is this like uh, a universal pattern? Or do we see something else, something new? For example, let's start off with uh, the American continents, for example. And Yeah, uh, I yeah. mean, um, I think... We have to, this is, I think this is one of the strengths of post-colonial and feminist approaches um, to any empirical um, problem, if you will, that we have to consider the specificities um, of every, or the particularities of what is happening in each case, right? So, um, 
in in the Americas. I think if you look at you know countries like Colombia or Venezuela, they're very they're different situations which are um, shaped by war and at the same time huge migration movements. Right, so the people at the in these borderlands, they're they're exposed to kind of other um, constraints that people might be exposed to when they come to um, when they approach the European borders, and I think. Um, at the same and at the same time, we can talk about um, people traveling or moving towards the American, like the U.S. American borders, um, where we have seen, I think, very similar developments in terms of um, the militarization of borders and the um, you know this this constraint or this this kind of. I don't want to call it conflict, but it's kind of the negotiation between humanitarian practices and security practices, which kind of, um, which is in, in scholarship by Polly Pellister Wilkins, for example, she calls this the a risk and at risk paradox. So where people are um, framed as um, being a risk to the borders or to the country or nationhood or statehood or whatever you um, you know, will because of gendered and racialized notions or conceptions about the the people who are approaching the the borders but at the same time they're also at risk right because of those military structures or because of the strenuous um journeys they they take through deserts um or through the water in the european context um, and so I think I would, I'm, I'm not that much of an expert on the, on the Southern um, American continent, I would much more draw like parallels between the American-Mexican border and the border in, um, and the European borders. And I would say that the, you know, the, the, the policies that you were talking about before, the harsher politics, or I think you called it harsher policies, I mean, we see them and we've seen them in in the us and mm -hmm. in my opinion we've seen them much more explicitly when there was the decision made that parents had to be separated from their children and children were not allowed to be together with their with their families um and i worry uh, i personally worry that these dynamics can could sort of in a, in a you know different way could come into place when we use these vulnerability categories and talk about and in Europe now we and we talk about let's take in the most vulnerable of the vulnerable because every time that somebody would say children and minors are and women and children are you know more vulnerable than anyone else this could present the risk actually of taking in children and minors who would be separated from um, maybe not from their parents, but maybe from their their families as a you know like their the fam family entities, which doesn't really help the the person in that moment. So maybe we can draw a very thin comparative line there. Yeah, but I think that that the biggest the biggest similarity really between those two regions, if you will, is the increasing militarization of the border regimes and kind of trying to make it make the the whole regime and the you know accessing them the migration and asylum in those specific countries or in the european union um to be you know getting more and more restricted as a restrictive as a whole right do you um 
there's a one very interesting point that you've mentioned as well towards the end regarding the sort of narrative that is used when when it is to refer to the vulnerability of certain groups so vulnerable women and children and uh the this is done to framing right in a way this is done to how things are presented and how things are normalized and uh again when it comes to the cases that we saw uh uh, and we, we keep on seeing uh, in the U.S. with, with the issue of uh, border security there and how p- uh, children are separated from their parents and how it is widely publicized in the media. Again, this is down to framing. And uh, the way we uh, understand security in general is <laughs> down to, you know, the existing structures and frameworks that people choose to describe certain cases. And this actually brings me to another question because uh which is again through a very critical understanding of how we normalize different situations and also when it comes to theory itself okay so the application of more mainstream theories and concepts they usually tackle with the issue of addressing and solving problems so we call them problem solving theories they work with within existing frameworks and structures, as I've, as I've mentioned, to primarily to provide these different answers and solutions in world affairs. So I, <laughs> I've actually used this in uh, my own research. There's this quote by the uh, late uh, Professor Robert Cox, who said, theory is always for someone and for some purpose. How do you feel, with particular reference to our topic now, how do you feel that post-colonial feminist perspectives in IR make sense of this? So the, the fact that different people, they will use theory, they will use existing frameworks uh, for a specific reason, for a particular agenda. And how can we use our more critical approaches to inform policymakers and decision makers alike of world issues in the security domain? I know this is probably like a $1 million question because their uh, critical theory in general is sometimes sidelined and as you've already you mentioned this at the very beginning it's marginalized because you know policymakers uh, they don't always listen to critical approaches so how do we overcome this uh, challenge yeah i think that's a big one <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> well you know i think the what you're saying about critical theories in general being analytic. Um, I think this this points to an important issue here is that policy is very much directed towards presenting solutions, right? Um, On a political agenda, there's a problem, we need a solution to it. So presenting, I don't know, numbers of Uh, How many people have crossed the borders in the Western Balkans in 2017 gives us much more information, allegedly much more information um, about the situation there than, I don't know, talking to the people who have actually crossed the border and asking about their experience and trying to make sense of that, right? So I struggle with this question a lot too, and I also struggle with it in a a kind of more activist context because... I feel like these these theories, um, you know, being a critical theories with a capital C or feminist or post-colonial theories, they can give us a lot of answers to problems of inequality, to problems of 
artificial north-south or east-west divides and can also give us very, very uncomfortable, I think you were mentioning this in the beginning, very uncomfortable answers to, to problems that we're looking at, um, especially problems that we're kind of in, you know, we're kind of as Europeans, if you will, you know, like mm -hmm. putting that reflexivist aspect in right now, that the regions that we live in are kind of responsible for reproducing. So, you know, trying to get people to listen to these analyses because they're highly complex in, in themselves is a, is a struggle. But I think that a lot of feminists and I'd also say a lot of intersectional and also, you know, let's say um, Black movements, for example, they, they've been quite successful in raising attention about these, these problems. But what I feel, um, if we if we keep it on an international level, is that when those those issues are brought to and the analysis are brought to wider or bigger audiences like the UN, for example, or the OSCE, or I don't know what other institutions, then the analyses and the maybe the solutions to it they get watered down a lot. I think the Women, Peace, and Security agenda is a really good example for this and which is has its anniversary this year mm. because the what women you know civil society organizations have what what they try to achieve with this with with their with their with their issues was not really implemented in the way that they wanted it to be and moving through all you know from from the year 2000 to now there have been so many resolutions and a lot of analyses um, also from a, a more intersectional perspective, um, post-colonial or decolonial perspective, it has been really, really hard to raise the issues of race and gender and not only a binary understanding of sex, for example, into those policy arenas um, for several reasons. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a matter of the epistemology of those theories, coming back to the theories now, but also at, you know, of the, let's say the goals that these theories have, first of all, you know, unveiling or deconstructing narratives or problems that we kind of understand as given or as taken for granted. And then the next step is obviously to, or so they say, to translate that into policy, but I don't, I don't really know whether this is the best step, because I think what we've done now is we've talked a lot about kind of top-down approaches, but the movements, you know, movements on the streets or grassroots movements, I think they're much more in the position of assessing or of understanding what, mm -hmm. what needs are, what uh, challenges are, what they're encountered with, you know, if we think about um, indigenous um, the you know indigenous populations in South America who are affected by land grabbing of huge European corporations or American corporations, they're probably much more in the position of telling their stories and understanding what they need or also how to improve things also on a global scale. So I think the, there's not really a solution to the question and there's not really an answer to the question. <laughs> but mm, I th maybe the first step is actually to understand the complexities of these issues and yeah, allowing more perspectives into the arenas, which are said to be you know, set in a very specific way. 
Yeah, I'm uh, I'm gonna be honest with uh, the reason I've asked this question. I <laughs> I wasn't really looking for a solution, and that's actually because <laughs> we are dealing with more critical <laughs> interpretations of uh, you know. It's just in general we don't we, we are not we're not really interested, and you, you've rightly pointed this out. Is there's no real answer to this, and what we are puzzling with is to understand why these things happen, how these have come into being, and to offer this sort of alternative perspective now. Indeed, when we try to enforce this at a global scale, as you've mentioned, it sometimes gets watered down. There is the, like, we can try and reframe policies away from the sort of mainstream uh, stance and towards, uh, to, to bring sort of an, uh, the attention towards the uh, other issues that we often neglect to see and mention. But at the same time, when we have, to, when we want to deal with policy, what the question here I'm actually trying to pose is, if we want to offer our own ideas and our own suggestions to a policymaker, should we, in your view, should we actually water it down and trying to come into grasp with the realities of the situation and try to, um, you know, work with the existing frameworks that they use in order for our suggestions to become effective? Do you feel that there's any point that we should be doing that? Hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm, I, I, I'm not sure if you, you know, whether you made up, you know, kind of created this dichotomy between critical, critical perspectives and then coming down to the realities of policymakers. I think um, if, I think the goal would be to make it a reality, uh, you know, the analysis that critical perspectives allow us to make, mm-hmm. right? Because they are, you know, they they are realities in a way. I mean, um, just because they might be a little more theoretical in the first place, they definitely are realities. And because they're they're based on the stories of people, and I think there's at least Cynthia and Lowe, and also other critical theorists who point to the fact that theories are always based on people's experiences and people's stories, right? If we, you know, if we differentiate between critical analyses and realities of policymakers, I wouldn't go down that road. And then I would, you know, mm, I think the point you're trying to make is that it doesn't make sense to take, let's say, more radical stances, right? And then maybe present those to policymakers who might be much more I don't want to use the word pragmatic, but um, have a very, very specific way of working. Yes, maybe we should. But I think that this is a lot of work. And I think that it um, doesn't really necessarily come with success. Because if critical theories um, challenge global inequalities, challenge the capitalist international economic dynamics and orders, if they challenge racist and sexist and all you know other other forms of discrimination discriminatory discriminatory practices if you will then it's uncomfortable and it it won't you know it also it's it challenges the way that policy actually works it also challenges the concept of policy itself so yeah i think people have been and have not been successful in bringing forward their I, you know, quote unquote, put them now into radical endeavors that they, they try to, to bring toward, you know, onto the table. But on the other hand, 
I think there's always a, a negotiation between having the interests of a specific or, you know, having the analysis of in a very specific way and then negotiating with yourself or within a group, you know, the best, you know, the best thing that you can do is probably to be organized, um, let's say in a union or I don't know, um, in a, in a political group and then negotiate whether you want to do your analysis and put them out there, or do you want to approach those bigger actors or those actors in power, right? I think the power question is a big one here. And then ask yourself the question, are you, if you work together with them, are you part of the system then already? I think this is a huge, mm. huge problem um, <laughs> that you have to come to terms with. But um, yeah, I, I, would, I would never trade, I think, the you know, critical analysis to a very pragmatic way of implementing things. But this is obviously a very ideological and very normative understanding of how to present the analyses yeah you know um to add to that i think instead of settling down or uh trying to you know come up with uh, um, inverted commas more uh, pragmatic approach because i don't think that that we we the, the the pragmatic pragmatic approaches in general they're actually based on the existing structure and the existing framework so what if I feel that the, the, the mission in, of uh, more critical understandings is to show that we're, we're placing identity at the core here. We're placing structure and uh, all these things, all these frameworks at, uh, under inspection. And we, f we figure out that these are actually not static. They're actually very fluid and things change. In Cyprus, for example, there was this uh, more than often when we puzzle within other activist and civil society groups, uh, myself as well included, when we bring in the gender question, people uh, within uh, more established legal, legal apparatuses, they will say that, why are you addressing this topic within, you know, because uh, why are you even addressing this topic? It won't change because the law refers to A or X, Y, Z. And what we're trying to do here, though, is not to go within that, down this sort of restriction that we see at the legal side, but we're trying to change. We're trying to introduce something new. We're trying essentially to change these frameworks. We're trying to change legislation. And this, as you've rightly mentioned, starts at grassroots. It can also be initiated from a bottom-up approach. Uh, but indeed, the, the issue there is to actually, you know, convince uh, legislators convince the decision makers, mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't mean that we have to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, at this point, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. It's been a very interesting discussion. I'm sure you've you've shared a lot of interesting uh, insights there, and I'm very excited about your project. Thank you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about it in the future. Thank you so much. Well, this has been fun. Um, and yeah. Thank you so much for having me.